Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. I want to dedicate this morning's Torah study to the memory of Reuben Rosloff, um, and who we honored um, with a memorial service this past week. And um, it's just so weird not to have him here. And he's been an incredible part of this community for a really, really long time. Um, all right. So we're starting chapter 34 of the book of Genesis. And we start. So usually this story is called the rape of Dina. This is Jacob's daughter. We only know of one daughter that he has out of his four wives and 12 sons. We hear there's a daughter, Dina. This, like I said, this text is generally referred to as the rape of Dina. I want us to challenge that word. Um, and in her book uh, that I used also to teach about Rebecca, in her book, um, Reading the Women of the Bible, my teacher of blessed memory, Dr. Tikva Freimerkensky, who read and translated Akkadian, Sumerian, and Ugaritic. They used to come to her when they were unclear about what something they found meant. Um, she was well-versed in the language of the region. She was incredibly well-versed in the parent languages of Hebrew, so proto-Hebrew. And so um, she, I, I will lift up for you what she does about the language to challenge. We do not know if this is rape or not. One thing we do know is that it does not matter to the storyteller because Dina is a young woman who is unmarried. And we have talked about this before, even recently, a young unmarried female, her sexuality belongs to her father. And then later, of course, it will be transferred to her husband, a young woman and a married woman have no control over their sexuality. None. It does not belong to them. It belongs to the family. It belongs to the household. How men are judged, they are judged on how well they control their women, how well they control the resource that is women's sexuality. If they can't control that, their status falls precipitously, and then they have trouble making other marriage arrangements because they are no longer desirable as grooms because their honor has been compromised. So we're going to have a little conversation later. I want you to be thinking about it now. Tikva raises, my teacher, raises the question. She died of breast cancer at in her early 50s, which was just a tragic loss to everyone, of course, her family, um, but it was a tragic loss to this field of study because she was just coming into her own uh, in terms of, there were so many more books uh, in her, but, um, but she raises the question, why, why is women's sexuality such a focus and particularly virginity? Because it is almost universal, including in our culture, right? Until fairly recently and still, I got to tell you, still, as a feminist, as a sex-positive person, I have trouble thinking of my teenage daughter being sexually active, right? What, what is that? What is that about? Why girls' virginity is so focused on by so many cultures remains a question. Tikva discusses it at some length and says, well, and she gives all the possible answers, and none of them work. None of the reasons you would think really hold up if you analyze and scrutinize it them carefully. So I just want you to think about that and we'll have a little conversation about that. All right. So in a culture in the, in the ancient Near East, you have choices. If you have to patrol and control a young female's sexuality, you have two choices. You lock her up in the house, which is what many cultures did, like in Greece in ancient Greece, you can lock them up at home or you have to trust that she's allowed out to do some things and, 
and has been taught the rules well enough to know what's expected. In the ancient Near East in Mesopotamia, this seems to be the case. They were they went out to draw water. They went out to shepherd young unmarried females because remember we see them at the well, don't we? Right, that's often where we have the betrothal scene is at the well. So they they are to water the animals and they are to sometimes um, serve as shepherds, but they are not locked up. But if they're out for reasons other than working on behalf of the family, then it's suspicious. Never a good thing. Something bad's going to happen. That is the meaning of the first two words of our chapter. Vateitse dina bat lea. So out, and this is how Tikva translated, which I love because the word to go out comes first. Out went Dina, daughter of Leah, that she bore to Jacob to see the daughters of the land. <clears throat> so what is Dina doing here? She's not doing chores. She's not, she's not getting water. She's not serving as a shepherd. She's not with the sheep. What is she doing? She's going out. She's going out to see the daughters of the land. All right. That's all we're told. What does this mean? We don't know. This is all we're told. But we should be alerted by the first verb. She went out. That always means possible trouble for a young female. All right. Vayarota, and he saw her. Who did? Shechem ben Hamor. Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite. Nesih Aret, a prince of the country, saw her. Vayikach Ota, and he took her. Vayishkav Ota, Vayaaneha. I completely disagree with this translation. Completely and 100% disagree with this translation. The Hebrew is... He took her and he lay with her. We're going to talk about that word. And he degraded her. It is not an indication of force. It is sometimes used when we talk about force. The word order matters. When this word is used in connection with rape, it comes before the verb to lie with her. He degraded her. And he lay with her. And often the Torah needs to use the word and overpowered her. If we're talking about like Tamar, that's the rape of, of David's daughter, Tamar. So that, that, is a, that is not what this necessarily says. It says he lay with her and degraded her. Any young unmarried female who has intercourse is by definition degraded. She no longer can can bring the bride price to the family that she would have as a virgin, and she has decimated the honor of the males of the family. In that sense, she is degraded. Whether she consents to the intercourse or not does not matter. She does not have the authority to consent. We still see this when we talk about statutory rape. Right. When we talk about a 15 year old, 14 year old girl having sex, we say, sorry, she is not in a position to be able to to give consent based on her age. So no matter who sleeps with her and how wonderful it was for her and how much she wanted it and how happy she is afterwards, he still could go to prison for statutory rape because she she does not have the power to consent. That is what's happening here. So it doesn't matter whether she consented or not. She does not have the authority over her sexuality to consent. All right. And this is, here's one of the arguments. And I'm not saying it is, it is the argument, but it could be an argument for this was not necessarily forcible. Notice how many times she's called Bat Yaakov. Right. The daughter of Jacob, the daughter of Jacob. It's Jacob's status that is on the line here. And his heart clung to Dina. Whose heart? 
Shechem's heart. He's in love with her. This term is used only of true, lasting love. Israel for God, right? This word gets used only um, when we talk when we talk about Genesis, when we talk about the Garden of Eden, right? The, a man's heart will cling to his wife, and they will become one flesh, and blah blah blah. So this is a, this is a term meaning commitment. And so he loves this young woman and he spoke to the heart of the teenage girl. Speaking to the heart is another indication that it is sincere. This is not, this is not used when you're trying to um, swindle somebody, right? Or sell them a, Bag of goods, right? What was it called? <laughs> Something of goods. Um, so this is used about genuine, genuine talking to her heart. And so Shechem says to his father, the king, get me this girl as a wife. We might go, wait a minute. Nobody's asked her what she thinks. We don't have her answer. Does not matter. It doesn't matter. What matters to the author of the story is that Shechem offers to fix the problem with the honor. He has defiled Jacob's daughter, but here he's going to make it right, right? He's, he's going to marry her. But v, this vav, I would say, is disjunctive, not conjunctive. So we, I would translate it as but, not and. But... Yaakov shama kitime et dinavito. But Jacob heard that his daughter Dina had been defiled. Uvanav hayu and miknehu basadeh, and his, but his sons were away uh, in the field. And so Yaakov didn't say anything until they came home. Yaakov could have acted. He didn't. He waits for the brothers to come home. So it's bad enough she's been defiled. But Shechem was going to fix that. He was going to marry her. But to marry her, he has to have his father make the arrangements because these are the Israelites are a foreign group living, right, hanging out in Canaan. And he's got to have his father make the Arrangement. Sorry, they're not in Canaan. They're, Yaakov has fled to um, Haran. So he's got to make the arrangements. But before the arrangements can be made, Yaakov hears what's happened to Dina. What does that mean? That means word is out. Word is out on the street. Now, it's not just what has happened to Dina and the family. Now, it's it's out there in the world. Now it's a scandal. Now Jacob's reputation is ruined. And there are still 12 marriages to arrange for 12 brothers. And their status has now crumbled. By Hamor, we're going to get the same language about Hamor that we got about Dina. By she went out. Out went Hamor. Abi Shechem, El Yaakov Ludaberito, the, the father of Shechem, he goes to Yaakov to speak with him. But the sons of Yaakov came from the field, and when they heard the news, they were upset. They were upset. And they were very, very angry because he had committed an outrage in Israel. Lishkav et Bat Yaakov to lie with Jacob's daughter. And this kind of thing, one does not do. This is a cautionary tale. One doesn't do this. Again, this does not suggest rape. It suggests this is something one doesn't do. I think the language around rape might be a little stronger, right? You don't lie with a daughter of Israel period, right before she's your wife. You, you, it's not done. You don't do that. 
by Debera Chamoritam. And so Chamor spoke with them, saying, My son Shechem is, is really super attached. He's quite taken with your daughter. Give him, please, to give her, please, to him as Isha, as a wife. So she was, she would be granted full status as a wife. This is important. This is the king of the region coming on behalf of his son, the prince, to ask for Jacob's daughter to be given to his son as Isha, as a wife, a full freeborn status as wife, not concubine, right? Like, even though she's no longer a virgin, intermarry with us, give your daughters to us and take our daughters to yourselves. This is an invitation to full, uh, to full relationships between the two groups. Intermarry with us means let us get close to each other so much that our sons and daughters marry each other. This is full regulation of, of relationship, which means trading. It means right protection. It means like the, Jacob and his group would be given full status as, as relations to this group, these, this local group. You will dwell among us. And the land will be open before you. Settle, move about, and acquire holdings in it. This is critical. Remember, Avraham had to pay an arm and a leg for a cave, for the cave of Machpelah in which to bury Sarah. Because people who are not of the land do not have the right to buy property. And they can be extorted if they really, really need to buy property. They are saying, to Jacob and his sons, we will give you full status just as much as locals to buy land. Jacob is wealthy. So it's not that he doesn't have the money to buy land. It's that he's not able to as an outsider. He's, he's being given the offer, him and his sons, of full normalizing of relationships with this, with, with this king and, and the prince. And, and their daughter would marry into... The royal family. Then Shechem said to her father and brothers, do me this favor and I will pay whatever you tell me. That should have been enough. Marrying the prince, full status as wife, full normalizing of relations, that should have been enough. But our impulsive young guy here says, and I'll pay you whatever bride price you set. She's no longer a virgin. And he's willing to pay whatever bride price the family charges. Once she's no longer a virgin, she's, she's not worthy of a bride price that's high. And their status has fallen. They are no longer a, a family that people are going to want to marry into, so they can't charge a high bride price. But this guy is so smitten with Dina, and he says, I'll pay you whatever you ask. Ask me a bride price ever so high. Ma'od, like a lot, a lot, as well as gifts, and I will pay what you tell me. Only give me the, the young woman as a wife. And Jacob's sons answered Shechem and his father Hamor, speaking with guile, because he had defiled their sister Dina, and said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to a man who is uncircumcised, for that is a disgrace among us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become like us and that every male among you is circumcised. Then we will give you our daughters and take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell among you and become as one kindred. So the brothers say, yes. All right. We will intermingle with you. We will become kin. Am echad is the Hebrew. We will become one people. But they're lying. They do not intend to honor this. So that's another thing. That's interesting. Why? Why pretend? Well, we're going to see why. But if you listen to us and become circumcised, we will take our daughter and go. Take her from where? Is, is one of the questions. Their words pleased Chamor and Chamor's son Shechem. 
And the youth lost no time in doing the thing, for he wanted Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most respected in his father's house. All right. So Nihbad, he was the most honored son of his father. He is the chief prince. He is the heir apparent. And he immediately rushed to be circumcised because he was so smitten with Dina. He's a, you know, this is, uh, that's what Tikva keeps pointing out. He just doesn't, he doesn't think. He just leaps before he looks. He slept with Dina because he wanted her. Then, then even after offering to become one people, he's going to offer whatever bride price he wants. Set it as high as he wants. Then when this is the offer that they have to be circumcised, he runs out to be circumcised. So, um, yeah, a little impetuous. Went to the public place of their town and spoke to their fellow townsmen saying, these people are our friends. Let them settle in the land and move about in it. For the land is large enough for them. We will take their daughters to ourselves as wives and give our daughters to them. But only on this condition will the men agree with us to dwell among us and be as one kindred. Our males become circumcised as they are circumcised. All right. Two questions. Why? He's the king. Why does he have to do this? Why does he have to go to his people and say, okay, folks, here's the deal. Well, if he doesn't do that, what does he got to do? He has to order them to be circumcised. So maybe he thinks that's not going to go over very well. Um, and then they're not going to want to marry, right, the women of Israel. But it seems that he's a really gracious ruler. It seems that he really cares about his people. He's not going to order them to do this. He's going to go with his son, and he's going to convince the people to do this. So he's told them the deal, but now he's got to convince them. You can imagine they're not terribly excited about this idea. Their cattle and substance and all their beasts will be ours if we only agree to their terms so that they will settle among us. So this is going to be really profitable for y'all. This group has lots of stuff. And they're going to bring that stuff here and stay here and, and become amechad with us, become one people with us. That's, that's good for us. Business is going to improve. All who went out of the gate of his town heeded Hamor and his son Shechem, and all males, all those who went out of the gate of his town were circumcised. On the third day, when they were in pain, meaning the most pain, right, Shimon and Levi, Two of Jacob's sons, brothers of Dina, took each his sword, came upon the city unmolested, and slew all the males. So now we have, why would they set this up? Circumcise circumcise yourselves and then we'll intermarry with you. Uh, Because they wanted all of the fighting age males crippled by circumcision. And because they had made a promise to intermarry with, with these people, They didn't have guards set up. They weren't protected. They didn't have anybody at the front door while they were recuperating because they had no reason to be afraid. They put Hamor and his son Shechem to the sword, took Dina out of Shechem's house and went away. So one question is, why is Dina in Shechem's house? So either she's being held captive or she's there because she wants to marry Shechem. And she knows that they're approaching her family to make an arranged marriage, possibly. And if he's the prince, we would imagine she might have it really good in their house, preparing for a a royal wedding, right? Think Princess Diana. They're shopping for a dress. They're getting her hair and nails done, right? Very possibly she's there because she wants to be there or is afraid to go home. Now that word is out that she has been defiled, that is the worst thing a young woman can do in the ancient Near East. The worst thing she can do is soil her family's honor. Okay, I have a question. So this seems to Y'all me... Are hilarious. Okay. Yes. Okay, so this seems to me, you know, it starts out, it's sort of really don't fuck with the Jews, okay, in my mind. Yes. Because it starts out 
that this girl, whether or not she consented or not, she had some sex. She brought it back and the father says, oh, okay, so it's all gonna be good. You guys all go get circumcised and we're all gonna be one family. Your kids can marry my kids, we'll share property. Because he was secretly conniving that, so on the third day when it's really painful, we're gonna come in and attack. I mean, this is just, to me, the brilliance of the Jews. <laughs> Lovely. Lovely. So, so Jody's proud. <laughs> Not really, but, but can I say, like, in the movie Munich or whatever, when they go and they assassinate all the people who have right. done us wrong. And it isn't so much that I'm proud, but it starts the um, thinking of, wait, they can really make this work for them and make a plan. So, so this, this is something that, that, that Tikva, Primer Kensky, lifts up. As she says, they really are in, in terrible, terrible shape. Dina has brought ruin on the family. They are no longer, now these, these 12 males are not suitable because their, their sister has been defiled, which means they can't control their women. They can't, they can't patrol and control their own interior household. What are they going to do? <clears throat> so this goes to Jody's argument. What are they supposed to do? If they allow her to marry into the other family and they intermarry with the people of the land, we, they might be worried about what kind of marriages they're going to be able to afford. But also, then does their distinctiveness as a group disappear? As Tikva says, could they be loved to death? So being loved and merging with the locals, on the one hand, is the greatest thing the Jews have ever asked for. What, what have we always wanted, right? Just to be just to be like everybody else and to be accepted. And if, if that happens, then look at what's happening in America, right? What are we so concerned about? Assimilation. Intermarry. Everyone wants to marry a Jew now. Like nobody has a problem with that. It's a status thing. They're super smart. They're hardworking. They're usually pretty successful. Um, so, so they know how to shop. So that, that, Every, every, everyone's fine having a Jewish spouse. It's actually a prestigious thing. So they could love us to death, right, is the, is the danger of that. You intermarry with the locals who are so ready to accept you and happy to have you as one of them that you lose your distinctiveness and therefore you disappear. <clears throat> so if that's the case, what are they going to do? If they say no to this marriage, they're done. And, and their boundaries have been violated through the body of Dina. And their honor has been violated through the body of Dina. Therefore, they decide they're going to kick ass and take names and then let somebody mess with them. So this is, so to Jody's point, they are smart. They are conniving. They, like the rest of the women we see in the Bible, are using the power that they have, which is the power of their ideas and brain, in order to trick the people in the region into not only losing all of their stuff to the clan of Jacob, but, but Jacob hits the nail on the head when he says, now what? We're so few in number. If they all decide to turn on us, we are toast. <laughs> right? So... Jacob knows the words getting out. Jacob knows that, that it, I mean, in a way their plan worked, right? Like the word got out about what happened. And to the end of his life, Jacob is angry with them for this. At the end of his life, when he's giving them all a blessing, he's like, Simeon and Levi, you guys are hotheads and brought trouble on this family. So Jacob is not happy about this. We don't know what the brothers think or feel, but we know what happens after this is they head back to Canaan, right? Hey, it seems nobody's going to mess with them 
but they also don't seem to be able to stick around, right? Jacob heads back to make peace with Asaph. Now, now you, when you realize where Jacob is, you see how vulnerable the family is. He, he's, he's estranged from Asaph, right? He's estranged from his brother Asaph, but he's also not getting along with his wife's family either. And now he's, he has no protection. He has no connections locally. He's not from there. He's from Canaan. So he's in big trouble. So maybe the brothers know what kind of trouble they're in and decide we're going to take preemptive action because they disrespected us. And that only gets you one thing in, around here. And that's killed or really low status, which leaves you really vulnerable. And I don't know about y'all, but I've watched The Sopranos. I watched Power. Like, <laughs> I know what you do. You know, you, you disrespect you disrespect the boss. What happens? Well, the boss's team goes and takes out right, the, the disrespecting parties and all of their relatives. Um, Judith Ubik has her hand up. Speak. First of all, makes me wonder if Dina might have had a plan underneath all this herself. And secondly, you talk about the Sopranos. What about the Trumps? Right. Right mess with me, disrespect me, and you're gone. But Dina may have been the smartest of them all. How so? Well, she knew the rules, clearly. And if she went out and had this problem with a man, she knew what would follow. And it did. And her family profited from it. So although she was defiled, she didn't lose. Her family didn't lose. Well... It seems that her solution wasn't going to work. That's true. Like in her mind, maybe that was a a possible solution. But Tikva said they had to raid, maybe on some level. They had to. They had no option because the Shemites had to be taught you don't mess with Israel. With us. With us. You do not do that. And if they only killed Shechem and Hamor or just Shechem, the townspeople would have had to retaliate. They would have had to defend their honor, right? And so they couldn't just kill Shechem. She, she, she says that's one argument, is that they, if they're going re- to avenge their sisters, the, the crossing of their boundaries. Right. has to be the whole community. It has to be the whole community, because otherwise people are coming after them. Mm-hmm. And the only way to, to really fix this was war. And if we think of Helen of Troy, this is not uncommon a theme in the ancient world, right? That a young woman's sexuality is violated in some way, and then it has to be avenged. And often that means war. That was fairly common um, in the- I'm connecting this also with settlements in Israel today. So surely that's part of it. Land, the right to the land, the right to use the land as pasture, as fields, you know, for agriculture, the right to use the land. Who decides who has that right? The victor. Exactly. So in this case, that would have been Hamor. And he's offering for them to build settlements. How might the local people have felt about that? Did he ask his people, like... How are you with them building a hotel, right? Right in the middle of your park, right? So we don't know, but he he believes this is a good economic arrangement. Let them settle here and like, then we can all share in the profits. So this is a never ending story. This is a never ending story, 100%. And that's what the story's about. It is not about Dina, which is really important to remember. After it's done, is Dina back to being defiled and the men dishonored? What happened to her, asks David. We don't know. We never hear about Dina again, ever. This is a cautionary tale. Dina disappears. She might as well not exist. Might be one answer. That's why she disappears, because she stops being a person. She stops being a factor because she's nothing now. 
We don't know. We are not told. But it is definitely, most assuredly, it is a cautionary tale told, right, about what one does and what one doesn't do. And what young women don't do is Tate say, you don't just go out to check out what the local girls are doing because that is going to bring disaster. That's going to bring ruin for everybody. So uh, Bob Ettinger says very similar to Islamic cultures, honor killing. Exactly. It's exactly the same thing. Mm -hmm. Killing women who bring dishonor on the family is one of the only ways to rectify that dishonor. Emma Linda. Thank you. Uh, I, I wanted to recommend uh, a couple of books on, on the historical context of this time period, because I think it's really fascinating. Uh, and I enthusiastically subscribe to a theory that I think a lot of historians hold that the um, subjugation of women and the attempt to control uh, reproduction and therefore lineage is linked to the development of agriculture and the rise of written language. Uh, the necessity mm-hmm. of logging who has accumulated property, um, you know, in hunter-gatherer societies, you never accumulated enough property for it to really matter whose kid was whose. But it, as agriculture rose and big cities begin to be established, uh, and written language is being developed that allows you to log property and inheritance, the controlling and ensuring of whose uterus is producing whose heir becomes a lot more uh, critical to log. Yeah. Um, and a couple of really good books on that are Sex at Dawn and uh, The Goddess versus the Alphabet. If anyone is interested wow. in further reading. Um, also, I loved The Chalice and the Blade, right? you know, talking about um, patriarchy being hierarchy and that in a matriarchal society, it was egal- it was more egalitarian. But that, that same idea that, that, that when it was a matriarchy, women didn't need to control everybody. Um, but, but patriarchy becomes about hierarchy. And like you said, it becomes about control. And then you've got a series of issues, um, mostly that you know who the child is of the woman, whereas you can't be positive who the father of the child is, but Tikva says to your point, Emmelinda, Tikva says bridal virginity is not necessary for that. Spousal loyalty would be, but but virginity on marriage is not a part of that necessarily a part of that equation, right? Which I find fascinating. I've never thought about it before, but when I said we're going to talk a little bit about virginity, that's one of the things she raises. Is, and she's very familiar with, you know, with exactly what you're talking about. She was one of the smartest people I've ever met. And, um, and she says you don't need bridal virginity. And, and frankly, if you're concerned about heirs, wouldn't you want a bride who has had a living child? That proves her ability to conceive and to deliver. And once her hips have spread like that to deliver, she's more likely to survive the next one, right, than the first one that could easily kill women. So it just, I never thought about it before because I always have subscribed to exactly what you're talking about. It was just a big old duh. I totally understood like how it originated, what happened. But bridal virginity is not necessary for any of what we just talked about, which I find fascinating. Barry? Um, yeah, um, I, I believe that biblical law specifically addresses this type of scenario, uh, but among you know, Israelites. Um, and yes. that you don't have to kill anybody. You just pay 50 shekels to the father of the, of the young lady. Uh, or you marry her with, the, with her consent and her father. Or you stone her. Uh, <laughs> uh, if she's married already. <laughs> Something um, and also Islamic law specifically fixes this with financial compensation. So honor killings are much, actually much older than Islam um, and have th- their roots in the Mesopotamic, the Middle Eastern culture way before Islam. Yes, for sure. For sure. Absolutely. David? You know, I was thinking about <clears throat> Jody's comments and on the one hand, I can see 
an element of pride saying, you know, don't screw with the Jews. We're the meanest sons of bitch in the valley. But on the other hand, I can also see a story for the roots of anti-Semitism by saying the Jews are just conniving. They set this up. They lied to us. They made a promise that if you get circumcised, all will be good. And they just lied. So I'm never going to trust a Jew ever again. I don't know, two sides of the same coin, maybe. I, I just don't know. Yeah, right. So that's Jacob's concern. Jacob's concern is we are no longer men of honor. Right? We, we no longer can be trusted to keep our word. The, the word's out that if we make a promise, it doesn't mean anything. And it could be one of the things that drives him to go to risk going back to Aesop's territory, even though Aesop may still want to kill him, it may be one of the factors that drives him to make that decision, right? Is we got to get out of here. Who are we going to do business with now? (laughs) Right? Like you just, you frighten the competition off from ever dealing with us, A, B, forever trusting us to be people of our word. Yeah, no, maybe nobody will mess with us, but are they going to want to marry us? Mehmet? Um, is this story one of the, the first signs of Jewish matrilineal uh, descent? Because uh, clearly um, uh, uh, this story tells other cultures don't take our daughters without our consent. No, because it stays very firmly patri- patriarchal. And, and, and the belonging to Israel goes through the man. So whether someone is Israelite or not depends on the father. But when did Jewish matriarchal laws start taking effect? So I want to be careful that we don't say matriarchal. It it, it hasn't been matriarchal ever. Um, So it is matrilineal, right? So so identity is conferred on a baby based on the mother when women were being Jewish women were being raped. So the, you couldn't be sure who the father was. And in that case, her child became a mamzer, was considered a bastard, and and people were not allowed to marry mamzerim. Only a mamzer could ma- marry another mamzer. So her child would not have the status to marry a Jew. So, unless they were a mamzer, another bastard. So as an act of kindness, essentially, the rabbis made it so that Judaism was conferred by the mother because you always knew who that was. And it took off the table. If she was a victim of attack, it took off the table the possibility that she would then further be punished by her children not being able to marry within the community. That's one theory anyway of, of why it shifted. Um, okay, so Linda, Bert said Linda unmuted. Did Linda want to talk? Me? I, I, I just wanted to, uh, to get the name of the second book that Emma Linda mentioned. Uh, it's The Goddess Versus the Alphabet. Thank you. And, and disclaimer, I haven't actually read it, but people whose opinions I trust tell me it's great. <laughs> the Goddess and the... The Goddess Versus the Alphabet, uh, that the the left brain dominance of adapting to using written language uh, sort of overwhelmed the more right brain feminine spirituality that was more common in indigenous and pagan cultures. Sounds interesting. Yeah, Thanks. cost of literacy. Great. Thanks, Emelinda. That's Thank a great thought. Literacy cost us. You know, I, I undermine your teaching any further. Sensitivity and compassion and empathy. Great. Terrific. Small price to pay, right? Um, Pam, were you going to say something? I wasn't, but since I was called on, I will. Okay. <laughs> and uh, that's, we haven't talked about the unfairness to the innocent people that were killed. You know, they're, they're being um, blamed and killed for something they did not do. And the women and children who were taken captive, right? The women and children lost their status at whatever their status had been. They become essentially slaves. 
They become all their stuff was stolen. You know, yeah. I mean, there's like two wrongs don't make a right, and that just seems really wrong. And uh, yeah, that's it. I'm so, just so I find so Judy always says to me, I don't understand how you can watch that stuff. The Sopranos, Power. I don't understand. All of the characters are horrible, and they all behave terribly. Who do you root for? Like, right? But really secretly don't tell anybody really you do kind of root sometimes for this one sometimes for that one and you hope they're gonna take revenge and you hope they're gonna kick butt and it's just this terrible horrible awful instinct right that right it's you messed with us watch this right and it's horrible like I'm not saying I'm proud of that but um right so I I don't know what I'm saying I, I guess I'm saying Right. Like that's how terrible. How can you root how can you root for anybody in this story? It's horrible. And it's kind of like mess with our mess with our sister. Oh boy, like you have no idea how bad this is gonna get. Right. And it, yeah, I think it's it's a primal, awful part of who we are. Barbara? Yeah, I think this shows um the Jewish tradition from ancient times of not want, wanting to let anybody into our little circle. Um, it's like there's a fine line between saying, nobody else can come in so we won't disappear and letting other people come in. And then, you know, then the assimilation. Um, and yet I keep thinking about other religions like the Catholics and the Mormons they always wanted people to come in and it hasn't hurt them. They have not disappeared. So maybe we were wrong right from the beginning. All right. So a couple of things. So yes, to what you said, that is exactly the point of this story. I think is what does a small group do that wants both to fit in and have some rights and privileges and contact and relationships with the locals, but wants to stay distinctive. What, what, what do you do? And then what happens when that boundary is violated? What, what's the response, right? Um, and, and I'll read you what Tikva says, but because um, I think you've stated it exactly right, Barbara. Um, the, but the other side of that, that so, so yes, how do, we, how do we both let people in and yet remain distinctive and, and not assimilate? But, but the difference between what you said about other religions and us is that we are not a religion. That is a very important distinction. We are not Christian. We are not Muslim. We are not universalists. We are not imperialists. We are not an imperial religion. We do not believe Judaism is for everybody. We do not believe Judaism is the right answer. It is one answer. It is the answer of the Jewish people to the question, how do you relate to the divine? And what are the obligations that are associated with that? That is not universal. That is a very big difference. So, so one of the reasons Catholicism and, and, and Islam are still around is because they are imperialists. They do want everybody to join them. They do think they have the answer for everybody. So then, so then you're not losing anything by bringing everybody in. But unless people are ready to be Jewish and part of the Jewish people, you can't bring them in to just do Jewish in terms of religion and not do Jewish in terms of what they eat and their calendar and what, we're not just a religion. We are a people that has a religious expression called Judaism. That is a very different thing. And that is what this is dealing with, that reality. Being distinctive in terms of culture, being distinctive in terms of identity, not joining together and disappearing. That's the tension here. And that's the tension the Jewish people continue to face. Barry? Uh, Well, this is a very important and interesting discussion. I don't think the story is about assimilation at all, because Jacob does not say anything about a a concern for assimilation, and um, and and his sons don't say we didn't want to assimilate or assimilation is a danger or whatever. They just said 
well, nobody would should treat our uh, women, our girls as uh, whores. That's it. So it's up to us to figure out what's this really about? Why is this really yeah. here? I don't think it's just about their women. I don't think it's just about Dina. I think it absolutely is a story about what does a small group do when it's bound. They, they offer full relationships with these people and then murder them. You cannot tell me that is not part of the story. The, why, why put that in there? Why not just kill everybody in the town? I think the author is showing the author's hand, offering full intermarriage, full settling down, full joining of this other people, and then they slaughter them. You just can't tell me that's not, I mean, we, we can disagree. That's fine. But I, I really think it's right there. And then Jacob leaves after this. He's like, we're out of here. We, can, we can't stay here. Um, and it's one of the ways that they stay distinct as a people is that they leave, right? And they do go to Canaan, and eventually we know the story right from there. So, um, but I'll read you what Chikva says. She said, the story of Dina and Shechem highlights the dilemma of any small group trying to survive. If it is militant, it courts destruction. But if its boundaries are too permeable, it might be loved to death. The distinctiveness of Israel was and is placed at risk every time it comes into close, amicable contact with other peoples. But the price of isolation may be eternal, eternal enmity and warfare, a price contrary to Israel's own self-understanding as a nation of peace. I think this is a prime tension in Israel today. This is a major tension in Israel right now. If it's militant, it has the largest military in the Middle East, if it does preemptive strikes, if it blows up Iranian nuclear factories, it courts destruction because it's in some ways tiny and the whole region can turn against it, right? But if its boundaries are too permeable, it might be loved to death. It's, it's a very interesting um, question. She says, the questions of boundary protection and boundary definition preoccupy Israel throughout its existence. Like the family of Jacob, Israel dwells apart. This national dilemma plays itself out on a national scene when kingdoms confront one another in war and peace. But it is also ever present on a personal level level, whenever a girl goes out to visit the daughters of the land. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.